Hi, I'm Augusta Palmer. I'm a filmmaker and also a professor of filmmaking and media history. And you're listening to Talkin' Blues. Okay, so I know that your grandfather was a, a teacher and a musician. I know your father was a musician and a musicologist and, a, and lots of other, a writer. Do you play an instrument? I don't play an instrument. I took some piano lessons as a kid. Uh, I, you know, I sometimes say I make music films for people who have trouble understanding music because that might be actually my position in the world. <laughs> I love music, but, uh, but I'm not a musician. Can I assume that your love of music comes from your dad? Well, actually, you know, I, I did not meet my dad until I was 12 years old. Oh. So maybe genetically, <laughs> and then maybe after that point, definitely, you know, he opened up a whole world of music to me. And that was pretty exciting to have that world opened up when you're a teenager. So, you know, some of it comes from him, but some of it comes from the other experiences I had. And my, my mom loved music. She loves early music and, and classical music. So she has a different, different interest in music. So I think I got it from both of them. But certainly, of course, I, I learned so much about music from my dad. Yeah. And I should just say that your dad is Robert Palmer, who wrote the great book, Deep Blues, who I think um, if anybody's interested in blues has to kind of either read that book or see that movie. Right. It exists in both forms and they're kind of different from one another. But it's definitely it's definitely the door that opens into the blues for a lot of people, which I think is a wonderful thing. Can I can I ask you how either the movie or the book influenced you? Well, the movie influenced me not to want to wear like neon green baseball caps, <laughs> which my dad wears in that. Um, and I also will not like sing a song about the water in Greenfield, Mississippi, which is something he also does in that. I mean, he does it okay, but anyway. Um, I mean, the the... The movie, I think one of the interesting things for me about the movie right now, especially is, and through the course of making this film, which has taken me quite a while, is that when my dad introduces himself in the movie, probably this, the second thing he says is that he was involved in organizing the, the Memphis Country Blues festivals. So that's, that's quite interesting to me. The book Deep Blues doesn't start out that way. And I would say that the book, the influence that it had on me is learning, learning a lot of blues history, but also he, my dad was a really consummate storyteller, I think. So, you know, whatever information you have, I feel like storytelling and how you tell a story is just as crucial as your content that you want to get across in that story. So did you love a movies or documentaries come from that or did it come from studying first like how much is the fact that he's involved in a deep blues documentary um, influence you as a as a documentary filmmaker or somebody who pursued media studies or did it not at all well i think the fact that he was so interested in taking pieces of media whether that's movies or whether that's 
a song, a recorded song, and really digging pretty deep into how that song got to be and how it was received when it came out, if it came out a while ago. And, you know, th that was definitely an influence on me that he was very engaged in thinking about that and thinking about the power structures of how music and media get out in the world. So that definitely influenced me. And in a funny way, I think, definitely my dad, I already knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker when he and I started talking about film, but he was a huge influence on me and a huge, he probably educated me more about film than doing a PhD in cinema studies did. Um, maybe just because his enthusiasm for what he loved in film, just like in music was so intense. And then if he got enthusiastic and excited about something, like he would dig deep to find out everything he could about it. So, you know, my first, my first lessons in film noir this is also kind of the, the heyday of the video store when we started, when I started talking to him about these things, you know, in the early nineties, you know, my first lessons in that really came from my dad later on, you know, I read a lot of books and did a lot of study, but uh, he was my introduction to a lot of, a lot of American cinema and also experimental cinema, which has definitely remained an influence on me. And I got a lot of education on those things in school as well, both as an undergraduate at Sarah Lawrence College and then as a graduate student at NYU. But uh, sometimes the, the foundation level did come from my dad, even though he's known as a music person and not a movie person. I, I wonder, um, when did you think I want to be a filmmaker? Was there a moment? Yeah, it's kind, it's kind of a funny moment, I think. Uh, so I, I think that my first memory of wanting to be a filmmaker is actually when I was uh, living in Taiwan and teaching English. And I learned a lot about cinema there, too, because they had these great things called uh, MTVs, which were like places where you could go and you could rent laser discs of movies and you often could rent a little room and go with your friends so you weren't watching something just alone uh and so i just started seeing a lot of the classics of cinema there and i remember after seeing um the godfather and then also seeing some some movies by ho Xiaoxian, a taiwanese director who i love a lot um i thought oh i really like visual art and i really like theater Newsflash, this is where they come together. <laughs> I should get into the movies, so yeah. Wow, yeah. and then how did you, so was that at that point you're thinking I should get into the movies, I wanna make movies? Yeah, yeah, definitely was thinking at that point I wanna make movies. Came back and finished my undergraduate degree mainly doing film production and then got, got a little distracted for 10 years and got a PhD in studying film history, focusing on Chinese cinema, so I blame Ho Xiaoxin for that too. <laughs> <laughs> and then at that time, were you also thinking that I want to teach? Well, I think if you're getting a PhD, you're usually thinking you want to teach. And then I, I think from the <laughs> from the beginnings of my my working life, I often was involved in teaching. Like my first my first real job was teaching art to developmentally disabled men. Uh, and and some children too. So uh, you know, I, I guess I just always I always kind of knew I would be a teacher on some level. Just something that's kind of hardwired into me. My mother was a teacher as well, 
um, very in her 20s, didn't last very long. But so there, there, and my grandmother on my mother's side was a teacher as well. So I got a lot of, I got a lot of teachers in the, the background. Did, did the teaching become a priority versus the filmmaking? Like how, how did you prioritize? Because I presume it's not easy to become, well, I know it's not easy to become a filmmaker. Um, and filmmaking is not just pointing in camera, editing it and putting together something, but often it's raising money and doing a lot of research and waiting years until your dream comes true. Um, so which came first? Was it, did you focus on maybe having um, a teaching career that will sustain a living style that allowed you to do film or was it the other way around? I think a lot earlier on, I just kind of alternated, you know, I was finishing my PhD and I was like, wow, I'm sick of all this <laughs> academic stuff. Let me make a movie. And I was also writing a lot about Chinese cinema in the, uh, around the, the turn of the millennium. And there were a lot of new hungry young filmmakers there, especially in mainland China, who were just picking up a camera and recording what was in front of them. Of course, then carefully editing it and thinking about it. but. Things were changing so rapidly there that sometimes just putting turning the camera on <laughs> was a, was a big step. So I was excited to do that. So I focused on filmmaking. You know, I finished my PhD, and while I was in the last year or so, I started making a film. I co-directed a documentary with my husband, and then spent a lot of time working on The Hand of Fatima, which is my last feature, which also involved my dad and the master musicians of Jajuka. This. Moroccan Sufi band um, and then you know there's a point when the money runs out and then it was like oh yes there is something I could do to make a living <laughs> so then I focused a lot on teaching which is not to say that I don't love teaching too but you know when you're a documentarian I mean I remember not so long ago going to a panel with a whole bunch of people who were nominated for Oscars for making documentaries and um, and almost all of them were saying like, well, for my real job, what I do is I make commercials or I do so. So I was I, I was like, OK, so I'm not the only person who can't make a living <laughs> making documentary films. It's pretty much just going around. So um, it helps to have something else that you're that you're doing that's, that's bringing in more money because documentary making is not it's not very lucrative and it costs money to do it. So you have to. I mean, there's some kinds of documentary making that you can do for almost no money, but even then when you finish, you have to have money to, to iron out the wrinkles and make it all beautiful. It, it's interesting when I look at your body of work, um, you, ha you talked about Hands of Fatima, you've also done an, an animation film, which is quite different. The two things, I mean, maybe the Hands of Fatima ha is maybe connected a little bit to what you, what you did with the latest film, but I mean, Animation is quite different from, you know, the Blue Society, which is quite different from, you know, the, the, the different things that you've done are quite different. However, there is some sort of a connection, family is being one of them, that, that ties what you, what you do. How do you choose your projects? Well, I think I just have to fall in love with something. Um, that's, that's part of it. Yeah, I'm trying to think that the most recent project that I've, well, I, I guess it's it's kind of a finishing, I was going to say the most recent thing I've finished, but it's I'm finishing it. I finished it at the same time as The Blue Society is a, a fiction film that uh, is called Order My Steps, which is about a woman in prison. 
And it's a very kind of straight-ahead fiction film, no animation. Otherwise, many of my films, even if they're, whether they're documentaries or fiction, they have animation in them because I do like animation a lot. And also, I like talking about experiences in film that that if you portrayed them in kind of live action documentary or in in recreation in a fiction film, like you know that, that I think I, I'm interested in spiritual experiences or experiences that we we can't articulate as well. So th those things have a tendency to to look pretty silly when you try and and make them real <laughs> um, with, with traditional means. So animation can be helpful for that. It can sort of take us out a little bit on a limb. Um, but I think I just have to be able to relate to it, you know? Uh, and of course, I remember being actually giving a lecture in a class and people said, so do you only make films about your family? And I was like, Huh, almost. My, fir my first film is about my near neighbors, a couple who were trying to save their failing marriage and start a new business. Not something I recommend for anyone, but uh, but they survived <laughs> and reevaluated what they thought was important. So the film is called If You Succeed. Um, and so that definitely doesn't involve my family, but I made it together with my husband. But then the next few films, you know, The Hand of Fatima is about my dad and his kind of honorary family, these mu musicians in Morocco. Uh, and then the next film is A is for I, I, which is this kind of wacky kids film, although I have to say I didn't know it was a kids film until it was finished, but it's a story about a, a child who wanders into uh, the picture collection in the New York Public Library, which is a great collection of images that are cut out and pasted on board and labeled. And those images come to life in that film through animation. And it stars uh, my eldest child. So my family was very much involved there as well. And uh, the Blue Society, both my parents are involved in that. And to order my steps, I think this story about an incarcerated woman, you know, it's it's about a woman who is trying to make peace with the daughter that that she abandoned earlier on and as someone who's a daughter and now has an adult child just turned 18 um so they think they're an adult no they are an adult <laughs> <laughs> um you know that that was something that i could really emotionally relate to that because I think we all try to do the best that we can in those jobs as being parents and sometimes as being children too. And we, you know, most of us mess up a time or two and have to figure out how to come back from that. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, the Blue Society, let's talk about this this new film. Um, I'm, first of all, I'm very curious as to the name The Blue Society because it, you know, when I hear The Blue Society, it all automatically conjures up an image for me which is not necessarily what your film is about, but I guess it is driven by a blue society and then need to um, give due respect to the musicians, uh, the black musicians of the blues and of Memphis. Is that correct to say? Yeah, I think that's, that's completely correct. And one of the reasons why I like the title is that it does describe what the film is about. It is about a blues society but I also like that, you know, there's a Toronto Blues Society, there's a Memphis Blues Society now, there's, there are blues societies all over the world, and to a large extent, they do 
come out of this 1960s or early 70s moment of blues revival, uh, which is trying to honor the people who, who created the classics of blues, let's say, um, and, and give them full credit. But in a lot of places in the United States, at least, like those blues societies became very white for a while in terms of the membership in the societies. Um, and now I, now I feel like I do start to see when I look around, there are more blues societies where more black blues fans are getting involved. And I'm, I'm excited to see that. But I, but I like that idea that a, the blues, a, a blue society is something that exists in a lot of places. And yet each one is kind of unique in its own way, how it got founded, who founded it. But they're unified by that enthusiasm for the blues. In my film, there's a character who talks about the fact that all these people who came together to make these blues festivals have a have are are filled with uh, uh, poetic furor. <laughs> he says, you know, because they, they just have this idealism and love for the blues. Yeah. So maybe I will ask you to explain what this film is about. It's it's taken from one of those festivals, uh, Memphis Country Fe Blues Festivals, which took place in 1969, but I believe the festival actually started earlier in like 66. But tell me about the story behind this festival, and then let's talk about how this film came to you and what you wanted to accomplish with it. So the story of the festival, which did start in 1966, like you said, and was kind of short-lived, ended by, depending on who you ask, 1970 or 1971. My film covers really 66 to 69, basically. And one of the things that really drew me to the story is that in 1966, it was just kind of a group of people going, hey, I got, I got a session check from doing a recording. I got 65 bucks so we can rent the public band shell with that. And then this other guy has a, a baseball size lump of hash and we can pay all the white musicians with that. And then we'll charge a dollar and we'll get those dollars and we'll give them to all the black blues masters that we want to celebrate who are, all, who are also going to play. Um, and so that's like this, you know, crazy hippie happening type of thing. And then within only a few years in 1969, they had um, two, well, they had a film crew and a television crew. So they had two media crews recording the festival. You know, they were getting coverage in Billboard as well as Rolling Stone. So, and, you know, the newspapers and the city were, were of Memphis were talking about it. So that was a, just a huge shift in a very short amount of time to go from crazy improvised hippie happening to something that was like a multimedia event, even though there were still, I think, aspects at that time of the crazy hippie happening going on as well. But yeah. And what was the audience to, for those festivals? Was it mainly white or was it black and white? The audience was integrated and uh, Reverend John Wilkins, who we got to interview in the film, sadly, he's now passed away and he's the son of Robert Wilkins, who wrote Prodigal Son and so many other great songs. Um, but, but Reverend John played with his dad at the festivals and he said, you know, my dad was going places and 
he, he could play there as a black guy, but there were no black people in the audience. They couldn't actually even come into the club or the venue or whatever. And so the Overton Park shell was somewhat unique for them that, that it was open and everybody could come in. However, I'll say with the caveat, you know, when the festivals first started, the staff restrooms uh, for the band shell were still segregated, actually had those colored and white signs on them. And, um, and although there wasn't a law that said black people couldn't come into the park, it, a lot of them felt like it wasn't their space. So, uh, you know, I do think probably, and from what I've seen, there are probably more white people than anything else there. I, it's interesting to me that there also are um, some people from Japan that come to the 1969 Blues Festival that you can see in the audience. Um, there are some other East Asians that are there uh, and there are people who came from Europe because people started hearing about this and in 1968 there had been this record made uh, by Sire Records and on the U.S. side and Blue Horizon on the British side. So that had gotten some people interested and made them want to come for this the next festival in 69. Okay, so Memphis has an amazing musical tradition in rock and blues and soul. Where did it stand at that point in between 66 and 69, 70 um, as a music city? Well, of course, Stax is a huge force at that time. Um, and they're making this incredible soul music, you know. Um, so I think it's coming into its own as a regional hub of music making. It's still when people get big, they tend to go to New York to record or maybe L.A., Right. Um, so it was this regional center of music, but that's mainly for kind of rock and soul. Blues had been a popular form in Memphis in the 20s and the 30s, and people had been coming down from Chicago and other places to record blues musicians at the Peabody Hotel and different spaces in Memphis. So, but that by the 60s, you know, that well, well before that, even in the 30s, that starts to die down with the Depression and then even more with World War II and the kind of dearth of recording material. Do, do you think um, the festival managed to achieve what they were hoping to achieve, which is to give due to the musicians? But was it successful in accomplishing what their initial goal was? Well, I think that's in a way why I wanted to make the film, because the answer to that, I think, is yes and no, <laughs> both. <laughs> um, so often the case when you set high ambitions, you you may achieve those, but then there may be other sort of side effects that you didn't expect. So and there were a lot of things in 1966 that they couldn't have exactly predicted, for example, that very sadly, in 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, and that meant the city of Memphis was very much looking for any way to get good press that was about something different than racial strife, right? right? And so that made the city very interested in, in blues music and Memphis as a blues city, uh, and seeing that they could attract people to the city with that, which both gave the the blues artists a little bit of money 
and and a bigger audience so that they could tour and things like that. But at the same time, you know, then there were more people interested in making money off of that money, as always happens. And those people were not always reputable or as respectful, I think, as the people who started the the blues festivals in Memphis, at least intended to be. So it was, it was mixed. It's a mixed it's a mixed legacy, and I think that's sort of the legacy of the the blues revival in general. It, it gave artists a kind of new lease on life for recording and new audiences. But whenever somebody sees that you can make money out of something, somebody's going to come in there and try and get their piece of it. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, you know, having kind of studied the blues over the number of years I mean the truth is it was never the most popular music it was always a small group who right people loved and and you know it exists today as probably strong as it did in the past there's really dedicated people fans but it's not huge and it probably never will be um and I think people who love the blues will hope that it's becomes bigger and they have good intentions but I don't know if it's ever reached that or coming even close to that, except for a few artists who, who've done quite well. Right. But it's a really small group of artists. Well, and it's for the most part, it is this music that is best played and consumed, you know, not in a huge stadium setting, <laughs> not with necessarily like a 12 piece band, you know. Um, you know, it, it is a kind of intimate music, I think, and in a lot of ways, right? And uh, and so it's hard for it to become that that huge commercial product. But I don't know if I'm taking us off the track of where you were heading. No, no, and and, and I guess was it a big deal to be on stage at Overton Park? Because I presume that that might be a small, a larger venue than what most of the blues artists are, were used to playing at. Yeah, I think it was a big deal in a few senses. And the first one maybe was that that kind of civic band shell across a lot of America and definitely specifically in Memphis had been mainly a setting for classical music. Um, there had start, you know, Elvis had played there. There started to be some other things like that. But it really was this place where mainly what you were seeing was something that was culturally valued and and that in a large part was classical music opera etc right and so to have blues put on that stage uh you know meant that blues was important musically important and and that was something that people were just beginning to say at that point that blues is you know maybe our most important american music it may not be the most the one that makes the most money but uh people always talk about blues being at the root <laughs> um, mm -hmm. right of so many other american musical forms like rock and so you know the, the idea of putting it on this public band shell stage gave it a kind of importance and then I think also these particular artists, people like Furry Lewis and Reverend Robert Wilkins, they had had a moment of some popularity in the in the 20s and 30s, but then they had been kind of forgotten and 
you know, if the average white middle-class person was walking down the street and saw Furry Lewis, they kind of saw somebody who cleaned the street, which they didn't necessarily have a huge amount of respect for. Um, maybe again, with the sanitation strike, people, some people at least learn to have more respect for that. Cause that is really important. We need people to do that, you know, mm-hmm, and, sure. and it's not, uh, it's not easy work, but so it was also in a way saying these people are important. They've created this musical legacy that, that people are interested in and people want to hear. So I think that those are the reasons why it was important. It wasn't necessarily that it made you a big star, even though Elvis had been there and he became a big star afterwards, but yeah. How did you come across this project? Like, I know there's a family connection um, because your dad, your mother was there. I believe in one form or another, you were also there at the one in 1969, which is pretty incredible, I think. Um, but how did, how did this project come to you? So it sort of came to me and then got away from me and then I, I, I pulled it back. Um, so I, I heard about this amazing footage. So there was this footage that was video footage that had been shot by Channel 13 WNET, which is the New York PBS affiliate. And on occasion that had been aired, especially it was aired a lot during the 70s. So people are aware of it. Wasn't like all that available but I had, I had been able to see some of that. And then, you know, I, I found out that uh, there was this other filmmaker, Gene Rosenthal, who had taken a five person crew to shoot 16 millimeter. And then I guess largely because when he got there, he found out that channel 13 was there with this big national show. He was like, so what am I going to do with this? But I'm already here. Okay, let's shoot it. So all of that had stayed in his basement for many, many, for decades. And uh, he had reached out to Nancy Jeffries, who was one of the original organizers of the festival and the only one of the kind of core organizers who signed legal paper, paperwork and stuff like that, who was still alive. He reached out to her and said, Nancy, I have this stuff. Maybe we should do something with it. Maybe we should make a movie. And Nancy said, oh, well, I think I know someone who might be interested in that. And that was me um, because I had interviewed her for The Hand of Fatima, which sadly she didn't end up appearing in. But anyway, I'm glad that I had interviewed her. So she thought of me. And so we went down to separately look at and listen to this material because the the audio was all on those tiny reel-to-reel tapes and the 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 image was just 16 millimeter film so i was glad that i had trained as a 16 millimeter editor and could put it up on rewinds and and pull it through and look at it in a little movie scope which is like a little viewer like about this big and then when we first got there um gene played for me the recording of my mom making her well at that point, it was her first and only public speech. She kind of made a public speech at the uh, at the premiere of the movie <laughs> last weekend. But anyway, we can talk about that later if you want to. But uh, but and as you were kind of alluding to, when she made that speech, she was pregnant with me. So sometimes I like to say I've been working on this film for my whole life. Even before I was born, I was working on it. But <laughs> of course, that's that's just kind of a joke. But that that's how I got introduced to it, and then. Nancy and I couldn't really, you know, we couldn't really figure out how to 
how to settle some things with the rights and come to an agreement with Gene. And I, then, you know, so I had really started kind of thinking a lot about the film and I said, well, it's just not going to work out. Got to let it go. And then after a couple of years, I thought, well, there is that channel 13 footage. Like there is, there is some stuff. And then there's a lot of kind of ephemeral stuff, the psychedelic posters and all these things um, from the era. So there is some visual material that I could draw on. Let me, let me go ahead and start this. Cause I also was always more interested in kind of that range from 66 to 69 from the, the ball of hash and the, and the $65 check to the multimedia event. And, um, and so I wanted to talk more about that where Gene had wanted more to, to focus on uh, just 1969. Cause that's what all his footage was of. And I was very lucky that not long after I made that decision, actually, uh, Gene teamed up with Fat Possum Records and they made this film Memphis 69, which is out there on, on YouTube and is just a straight ahead concert film, just one song, another song. And, uh, and it, it's great for that, but I wanted to delve into more like what people thought about it, how people felt about it. So, um, and Fat Possum were willing to then license me some of the footage. So I ended up getting more footage, waited, waited a little while and, uh, kind of made a leap on, a on faith and then ended up having a lot to draw on. Was there a moment when you're going through the footage that you thought, man, I got to do this. Was there something that you saw that, that made you convinced that this is a project worth pursuing? There were two things early on, you know, in that, in that first stage that really grabbed me. One was hearing my mom make this public speech because she really hadn't made any public speeches when I was growing up. And also, you know, I grew up not at first knowing my dad and my mom was not interested in blues at all. So it was like, oh my God, you know, you find out your parents had these whole lives before you were born. How could that be? Um, anyway, uh, so Wait, that was interesting to understand. Yes, go ahead. Can, can we, we refer to the speech that your mother made? Yeah. We should talk about what that speech was. Sure. And so, what, the so, context of that. Yeah, the context of... The speech was that my my mother had been sitting at the front gates taking tickets for days, which is why there's actually no footage of her because <laughs> she was out of range of the cameras working hard, as uh, is the case with a lot of the women who worked on the festival who didn't always get acknowledged. But uh, she she was acknowledged when she was introduced for the speech that she made. And the reason that she was speaking is that um, people were just kind of barging their way in and not paying the $1 admission charge, which even in 1969 was not that much money. Um, and from her point of view, she actually says in the speech, like 700 people paid admission. There are 3,000 people out there. I don't know how she counted them. I've, I've asked her like that. She's like, that's the estimate I made. Anyway, it, I think it's actually pretty... From what I've heard, it's a pretty close estimate to how many people there actually were there. And so a lot of people were just really excited about seeing Johnny Winter, who had, you know, recently been signed to a big record contract and uh, was really attracting a bigger audience than, say, Furry Lewis at that moment. And so she said, please pay for your tickets. I'm going to pass a hat. If you didn't pay, put some money in the hat because we do this as a benefit 
for these people who made this great music in your city, of your city. You know, you should you should be appreciating them and showing them your appreciation with your with your wallet. <laughs> she didn't use exactly those words, but that's that's what her her meaning was. So, yeah, she was. And was it a successful uh, request? Well, you know, everybody I asked doesn't seem to remember, <laughs> which means it's a real 60s story. Um, but, uh, you know, even with what they had just collected at the gate, I'm sure they got some things. Um, probably some people who paid their mission put in another dollar, uh, if I know anything about human nature. And maybe some of the people who didn't felt a little guilty and put something in. Um, but the from the beginning the the festivals had kind of been collecting that dollar or so admission and then splitting that out between the blues players fred mcdowell robert wilkins furry lewis so as the as nancy jeffries says in the film a lot of the money stuff was like putting piles of one dollar bills in paper bags and handing them out so I'm imagining that's what happened, and I'm imagining they got a few more $1 bills. <laughs> so nobody nobody made a fortune. Did your mother make the movie? Like, I, I don't know how, she wasn't filmed, but there is a recording of her speech. Right, so they was recorded the, the, the speech? Her, her audio. So yeah, that's that the, the audio of her speech is in the movie, and then there's a very brief interview with her in the, in the present talking about that. And, was there a wealth of interview material that you could draw from? Like, did you, were there interviews with the musicians, attendees, the concert promoters or? So I searched a lot to find those people where they were still living. So I got a lot of interviews with attendees, organizers, uh, um, musicians, musicians. There were not very many still alive. John Wilkins is really probably the only one, but there was a wealth of great material at the University of Memphis, these oral histories that had been recorded with most of the major blues musicians in the 60s uh, by people who were studying them at the at the university. And so uh, so those some of those are like the Furry Lewis one, I think they're probably like three hours of that. Obviously I didn't use all of that, but so I was able to get these great audio only oral histories with uh, Furry Lewis, Robert Wilkins. Um, I don't, there's not one for Fred McDowell. Who am I? Uh, Booker T. Washington or Booker White. Yeah. So those were those were great to draw on to hear. Their, I can imagine. Hear their and what was that like? Uh, it was very, when I first discovered them, it was very exciting because when I first started re doing research, um, there were transcripts. I mean, when we hear oral history, mainly what we kind of think that we, we get that through is like we're reading a manuscript, we're reading a book, it gets collected in that way. So, um, so I didn't know what state the audio material was in, but um, I suddenly thought, well, I should ask. Um, and they said, oh yes, it's still, it's still here and we've digitized a little bit of it and we can digitize more. And so they, so they did. So that was, and so it was really exciting to hear, hear those voices coming to you uh, over a pretty vast expanse of time. Um, I mean, these are the greats of the blues when you think about Fred McDowell and 
Fury Lewis and Bucka White. And yeah. That must have been quite a journey. Um, I wonder when you went through this whole process, what you might have learned from the journey that you took with this film. I learned a lot. I think I suspected early on that there was a way in which the promise of the blues festivals hadn't quite been fulfilled. Um, I think that was because when I started to talk to the white people who are involved, they were, they, uh, many of them were kind of expressed something like, well, thank God we did that. And that's taken care of. And I was like, well, you got these guys a little bit more notoriety and you, established a space for where for a limited period of time, black and white people could talk to one another and be in the same audience. But it was almost, I felt as if some people were saying like, we solved racism with this. And I was like, I, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> um, uh, and of course I was starting to make this film in 2016. So it was kind of the, the the heightening of Black Lives Matter movement and all those things starting up. So it became clear and clear to me that that, that was the case. But I think some of it, it took a while for me to understand. So one of the, one of my favorite people in the film, favorite musicians is Nathan Beauregard, who was a man who in the typical kind of Columbus-like expression of the of the time was discovered by by Bill Barth. Of course, he'd been around for a long time and didn't need to be discovered. But uh, he was a, a blind black man who, when Bill Barth discovered him, he was walking by and he heard this great sound and he and and Barth, who had helped to bring Skip James to the Newport Film uh, Newport Folk Festival and things like that. Uh, he was out canvassing for records, going door to door, going, do you have any old records? So he heard this music and he thought, oh, those people are playing a really good record. But he knocked on the door and someone said, come in. And it was actually Nathan Beauregard playing the song live. And and Barth, it seems like, just decided that Nathan Beauregard was playing this kind of older repertoire. He seemed older to him. And Barth decided that he was like 100. Um, he didn't really ask Nathan, and then he started billing Nathan as the world's oldest living blues man. Um, and so that became, you know, Nathan's, what he was known for a bit, right? So, and Nathan is a, a blind man who, unlike a lot of the people, uh, the musicians in the film, hadn't had a recording career earlier on. So he suddenly being able to record records and having fans and playing for people and getting paid, you know, he can't in that situation or it's very difficult for him to say, no, actually I'm 70. <laughs> and there is a difference between 70 and a hundred, um, you know? And so I think when we were able to find that out and do some research, there had been some research published in the nineties that said this, but, but uh, then I worked with the Mount Zion Memorial Fund, which mainly is in the, in the business of putting up memorials for blues men at cemeteries, but they are also really strong public historians. So they found Nathan Beauregard's World War One draft card um, and some census records to confirm that he was indeed in his 70s. Uh, and that just made me, and then I, 
there's Chris Strakewitz did some did one interview with Nathan. There's very little interview material with Nathan. That's actually the only one that's just a, a straight up interview that I know of. And Strakewitz is asking him, "How old are you?" And Nathan says, "Well, I I won't lie about anything. So let's move on to another topic." Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so and. You know, I think at the time people just thought, oh, this guy is kind of funny. But now knowing this, knowing what the what the truth was about his age and things like that, um, you know, you can really hear that he's in this pretty difficult position. Obviously, people went through much more difficult experiences than that, um, especially black people living in America in the 1960s. But I think that that when I understood that story, I understood more how even though there were very good intentions, it was really very difficult to communicate across that cultural divide, uh, that power dynamic of, of whiteness being where, where the power is and where the money is, and the idea that these hippie characters who felt like they were um, in the margins because they had chosen to be there, they still had a fair amount of what we now refer to as white privilege, you know, um, and and they could go and be in black spaces and white spaces, but most of these black musicians, you know, that they could only do that if someone was uh, inviting them and giving them a reason to be in a white space, right, to play music or something like that. They didn't have that that freedom of travel across those lines in the same way. So, I think I, I gained a greater knowledge of that. I also gained a great uh appreciation for what the subject of my mom's second public speech at the at the the festival debut which was her great appreciation for the sideways pony which is something that the the barquets perform in the film <laughs> 60s dance so so not everyone who performed at the festival was especially the 69 festival was a blues artist but as james alexander from the barquets says you know it, we may be a soul artist, but it all comes from from gospel and blues anyway. Interesting. Um, 60, 66 to 70 would have been an interesting time in the blues because I, the British blues invasion was probably happening. And so blues was getting probably a lot more recognition. I don't know if that's what maybe drew, drove this uh, need to recognize the black artists of yesteryear. But um why did the festival end? Was it because, oh, we've done our duel, everything's fine now? Or was it a financial thing? Or why did it not continue? I think there are a couple of answers to that. Um, and probably everything you've addressed is part of it. Uh, I think the core group of organizers who signed the papers, uh, even though it was this big community effort, uh, but that core group of people, most of them were in a band called the Insect Trust, and they had signed a record contract and were opening for The Doors and Sly and the Family Stone. They had their, their brief signing moment right in 1970 and 1971. Um, and so they had less time and maybe less energy to be devoting to the the blues festivals. Randall Lyon, who stayed in Memphis and wasn't a musician, he was the only one of that that group who did that. He tried to really keep things alive. But I think the other thing that's interesting about the festivals that we haven't really talked about is that most of the people putting on the festivals were back and forth between New York and Memphis. Some of them were from the South, some of them were from the North, but they started 
partially because of the band that they were in. They would work as a band in New York and then they come down to Memphis and put on the, the festivals. But that, you know, something that happened kind of accidentally and organically was very positive for the festivals because they could actually spend the time to really get close to the people who are making the music, the blues music in the South, but they could also spend the time to give interviews and send out press releases to people in New York, right? So, uh, but at, at a certain time that went all lopsided when they went on the road touring with their own band. Uh, so that's part of it. And then the other side of it is that, as I mentioned earlier, the city of Memphis got very interested in this legacy and also people who wanted to, to monetize the blues more got interested in it. So, um, so they came in and dar started doing things like Steve Levere created a, a tour that traveled around of a lot of these blues artists. And then the city started having various different festivals at which sometimes the blues men were playing and started creating this kind of in industry around the blues. Do you have a sense of other cities doing? Like, it's an interesting time, and I don't know how many other cities were hosting blues festivals during that time. So I think that, as far as I know, the first blues festival was actually in Berkeley, California, um, and involved people like John Fahey. And I believe that Bill Barth was a little involved in that too. John Fahey also played at the Memphis Country Blues Festivals. Um, and and so they were they were big forces. So I think there were a lot of blues festivals that started. Ann Arbor started not too long after. Um, of course, in the case of Berkeley and Ann Arbor, well, especially Ann Arbor, maybe that maybe there weren't so many uh, native blues people to draw on. It was more about bringing people in from other places. So, but you know, Chicago certainly started a blues festival and was so. So I think that there were a lot of places, yes, that were doing that. Memphis maybe had the the longest history with blues. Of course, it's a tradition in New Orleans, but like jazz is at the forefront in New Orleans, even though there's certainly blues being played there and that sort of uh, great migration, right, from the South and from tenant farms up through to Chicago. A lot of people just got to the first stop, which was Memphis, and that created a lot of great, great music. So I do think Memphis is a little bit unique in its in its relationship to the blues. But I would be interested in knowing more about, let, like, let's say Kansas City, which I know has a really important blues tradition too. So I, I don't I don't know as much about that. Well, it's interesting when you think about one thing about the blues. It might not be huge, but it it is across the globe, and there are blues festivals in so many different places and so many different countries. Absolutely, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. And I guess that's another thing that I learned, which is I, I love that and I love the universality of the blues, but I also do think that to some extent in that, you know, British, British invasion obsession with the blues and getting it out there, and then also even some of the preservationists, they wanted to make the blues this incredible humanist tradition that we can all relate to which is true. We can all feel that music and most of us relate to some of the sentiments expressed in blues songs 
But I think there was also a way in which that tended to sort of sand off the rough edges of the hard experiences that produce the music, which are specific to Black Americans and the and the things that they live through. How do you think that event has influenced what blues is today? Or I mean, that's a huge question. That's a huge question. I mean, you know, I think I think all this is arguable and somebody can write a PhD dissertation. I've done that once about something else. I'm not going to do it about this. But anyway, <laughs> once is enough. I know people have gotten two PhDs, but I'm not scary like that. Um, anyway, so, but, but I think in a quick kind of way, I mean, you can really think of that festival as not being maybe solely responsible, but in league with all the forces that created let's say the Handy Blues Awards in Memphis um, from the Blues Foundation there, which continue to have some influence in the whole world of blues. Um, so I think that kind of the confluence of that festival and sadly the, the assassination of Martin Luther King really created this, this industry around the blues, which has its good and its bad sides, as we've already sort of said, yeah. Okay, so how does one get to see this film? Well, that's that's a good question. Yeah. Right, <laughs> it just right, premiered at a festival. It just premiered at a festival, uh, right to Netflix, because or, or whoever, because we're still your, your public TV uh, people. Uh, anyone that you think might be interested in picking it up, I do have some people who are interested in distributing it, but as of right now, we don't have a distribution deal, so I have to I have to answer that question later. Um, but it will it will be out there for people to see and, and hear, and I hope like within the next year or so. Yeah, I mean, is that for, as a director or, or producer of this film, is that the goal is to get it on something like Netflix, which will be accessible to 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 a lot of people, or is it better to be seen in different film festivals? Well, I mean, I love film festivals. I just had a great time at Indie Memphis, uh, which, you know, of course, being in Memphis was a great place to premiere this film fest this film that's about Memphis. But it's always kind of a smaller audience. I've been been invited to show the film at other festivals, and I'm I'm interested in doing that. But uh, I would love for the film to get a broader exposure through theatrical distribution or streaming distribution, because let's face it, now people watch the majority of content they watch probably on streaming platforms. So that would be great. But, you know, public television also streams things. And, uh, and mainly I just want it to be available to, to whoever wants to see it and also for it to have, you know, when you spend seven years making something, you're hoping your film has at least that long of a life afterwards so that people can look at it in colleges and universities and in high schools and, and think about what this music means and what that historical moment means now in the present. Does the success of something like Summer of Soul, I mean, that's gotta help. Yeah, I think film, it definitely, right? definitely helps, you know? um to have people realize how important that that film was and that experience so that experience of this black festival in harlem and being able to see you know the moon landing for example seen through a totally different lens in summer of soul than we're we're usually seeing it having people go hey maybe some of that money should be put towards feeding the people right here who are hungry instead of sending people to the moon right. 
um, you know, just for example, one of the thing, things that I love in addition to the musical performances, of course. So I, I think that Summer of Soul definitely is a big help in this idea that music is a road to the center of culture, the heart of culture, I think, um, because it's so emotional and gets us engaged. But it also, you know, it, it also takes us into history. It takes us into economics because all those things come into making and packaging and listening to music. So Summer Soul and films like that were, are a big, a big leap forward, I think, for music docs. My final question is a two-parter. I don't know if it's a fair question, but in the seven years that you worked on this, there would have been a lot of highs and lows. Can you share with me a low point where you thought, Ugh, I don't know if we can go through this, and, and, but also share with me the high point of this experience? Okay. So I think the low points, um, just spending years writing grants and getting rejected for grants. I mean, there were like, I guess like four solid years of that. I was lucky in that time to do some crowdfunding and get support from private donors, which is well, crowdfunding has gotten pretty tough, but but going to a private donor, if you can find somebody who, you know, likes to give money to causes, it's, it's a little bit easier and a little bit faster. Even if you get rejected, it's faster so you can go on to the next person and ask somebody else. Um, I mean, I was I was lucky to get all that that kind of private and, and sole investment from people like that. But, you know, it's when you write grant proposals and you're saying this film is really important and you're getting rejected for a period of years, that's, that's the, I think at about the four, four year mark, uh, that was, there was a moment where I was like, do I really, am I really going to be able to finish this? Like, cause I felt like all the crowdfunding people had sort of like given what they could give and I felt, felt bad to go back and ask for anymore, you know? Um, and, and then it did, just didn't seem that it was the kind of thing that was getting grant funding. And then, you know, I think it's, a. Uh, I've sat on grant panels too, so I understand that. Some of it's a little bit random. Some of it's a little bit about the chemistry of who's in the room and, and what they had for breakfast. <laughs> Feed your grant officers well, people. Oh no, but, but, uh, but then I got a national endowment for the arts grant, which in the scope of making a film is a small amount of money relatively. Um, but then after that, I was able to get a national endowment for the humanities grant which was sizable and a, a New York state council for the arts grant. So once you get a grant, it becomes hopefully a little bit easier to get, get more, but there was definitely a time about four years in where it just seemed like I wasn't being able to get the, the large amount of money that I would need to finish because mastering a film is always editing and mastering for documentary are the, the biggest costs. And the high point high point Definitely the festival debut, but I think also just before that, being able to, once I got the sizable grant from the Endowment for the Humanities, to be able to go to a great animator whose work I really like, Kelly Gallagher. She's a filmmaker in her own right. Um, and I had always dreamed of even like sampling some of her work and had asked her and she was like, I'm not sure about that, but I was able to commission her to do some special animations for this film. That was super exciting. 
getting also there's a there's another like set of footage that haven't mentioned before, which is these experimental films made in Memphis in the 1960s by the this experimental filmmaker Carl Orr, and uh, he was cagey about that footage. It was very hard to talk him into letting me uh, letting me transfer it, and uh, and and then actually the you know the thing that you see in the film where you see people with rewinds like then leaning in to like look at the footage. That's how I had to evaluate his footage because it was all almost all negative and it was um, the holes in the side of the film were spaced in a in an unusual way. So I couldn't put it in the movie scope, the little thing where you can view it. I couldn't. So I literally would like kind of like roll it a little ways and like look at it and maybe take a picture reverse that picture because it was negative and then go a little further <laughs> um so actually being able to and then, so it was like i was making a decision based on that that i wanted to spend spend a fair amount of money transferring that material so then to see it and to see this there's just like a lot of very funny stuff of these memphis hippies enjoying their life or Memphis bohemians as they would call themselves. They didn't like to call themselves hippies. Um, and just this, this sense of their, their joy in life and their, their poetic furor uh, came, came across in that footage. So seeing that footage transferred and, and moving, uh, that was a huge high point too. So is there a website for this film? Like if people want to just, try to figure out how they can watch it is there a place that they can go and find out yeah the it's the blue society film.com is our website and then we have uh you know facebook pages and instagram page and twitter or we can't even say twitter now x uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah the 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 facebook and the instagram are pretty active and you can find the website there but the, the website is the blue society film.com great Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for doing this. It was, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing this film. Cool. It was really nice to talk to you. Yeah, you're, you're, you kept saying that you were asking things that might not be fair, but I think all your questions are more than fair. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot.